Um, today we're continuing in a series that's called um, Hearing God in the Wilderness, and we're looking at a variety of narratives in the New Testament and the Old Testament um, that really uh, show us different things around this concept of hearing from God. Um, Christianity is, is, is unique in the sense that what we believe is that there is not just this idea that we hold to be true about God. It's not just that we think certain things about who God is or what God is all about, but we believe in Christianity that we have a relationship with this God. Um, so what makes Christianity distinct is this is not just some sort of ideological thing that we hold to. Christianity is a relationship. It's something that that, that we encounter, it's a relationship that we live in. And just like any other relationship, we are speaking and we are hearing, and just like any other type of interaction. And so we believe in Christianity, that we hear from God, and yet simultaneously, I think there's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of vagueness, uh, a lot of misinformation around what it looks like to actually hear from God, and how do we actually listen to God. And so in this series, we're talking about hearing from God. We're also talking about um, what it looks like to hear from God, in particular in seasons when life has taken a turn that we didn't expect. So what happens when things aren't going well. How do we hear from God in those times, in wilderness seasons? So, so we're talking about this, and before I go any further, I just want to share a, a, just a personal story that um, back in 2004, um, my wife Sherry and I, we were, we were in New York City, and we were um, there to train some church planters. We had gone, traveled from Spokane to the East Coast, and while we were there, we were invited to some meetings. There's a guy named Timothy Keller who was having meetings with these denominational leaders from all across the U.S., and he was presenting on a, a white paper, or a, a, a basically a, a, an idea, a strategy around um, what would happen if we planted gospel-centered churches in global city centers, specifically cities like New York City. And so they had gathered all these different people, and Sherry and I weren't supposed to be in the room. Um, we were invited by some friends to join kind of at last minute. We got in the room, and I don't know if you've ever had one of those times when you like look at each other and you go, why are we here? Um, but we were having one of those moments. These are presidents and vice presidents of all of these organizations across the U.S. We were by far 10 years the youngest person. We had very little experience, and we're sitting there going, what in the world are we doing in this room right now? But we listened to most of the, the presentation, but during it, I have to be honest that that was going to be our last night in New York City, and I was looking forward to a killer date night. We were trying to get tickets to David Letterman. And uh, so I'm listening to this. I'm like, this is great that you guys are talking about all this stuff that you're going to do. This is neat. I don't know why I'm here. And so a little while into the meetings, the friends that had invited us said, hey, the rest of it's probably going to be pretty irrelevant to you guys. Why don't you guys go? And so we left the meetings. We're in the Midtown Hilton in Manhattan. We leave the meetings. We kind of are heading out for this great time together. We're going to have a great evening talking about what we're going to do. But we were also talking about what those guys were going to do with their time and their money and their energy. And I'll never forget, we were crossing the street. We were at 52nd Avenue and 6th Avenue of the Americas. We're crossing the street. We're halfway through the road, and I just heard this thing. I heard something. It was like deeper than my own voice, not deeper in terms of tone, but just deeper. It was deeper in my soul, right? And I just heard this. It was like this nudge. And it just was simply this. Why not you? And by the time we made it to the other side of the street, I'm realizing this nudge, this was more than just bad pizza. This is more than just my conscience. This is like, this seems like maybe there's a reason we were in that room and maybe God's telling us something right now. So when we got to the other side of the street, literally this is just a moment in time. I'll never forget it. Just, we get to the other side of the street and I said to Sherry, hey babe, I just kind of feel like the Lord's prompting me to say this and that's why not us? And she proceeded over the next couple of blocks to give me about 15 reasons why not us, right? 
In fact, for the next 12 months, that moment hung over us. In fact, we entered a bit of a wilderness season in which we could not get away from the conversation. What was that moment? Why are we there? And what did I hear when I was crossing the street at 52nd and 6th? What was that nudge that I got in that moment? And, and, and so that conversation continued on and on, and we tried to discern, God, is this you speaking? And every time we put a question to God, every time we asked, and we tried to discern what he was directing us in, we came back to that being what he was telling us to do. Why not you? And so in 2005, August, a little over a year later, we sold most of our belongings. We packed up our girls at a, and, and we moved to a new city to start a new church in this new place and start a new life. We did this because God had spoken to us. Now, the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 2 says this. He says, if you call out for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I want you to notice a few things about this verse. The writer says, you will understand the fear of the Lord. There'll be an understanding that you have of who God is and how he's operating. He says, you will find the knowledge of God. And he says that the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives understanding. The Lord gives knowledge. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. That is really good news for people like you and I who want to hear from God, that he actually speaks to us, that he actually does give us wisdom, that he actually does give us knowledge. That's really good news. But I also want you to take note of the conditional nature of what the writer is saying. Will God do these things? Well, absolutely he'll do these things. Absolutely he'll do them. But it hinges, notice, on you. It's preceded by you calling out for insight, you raising your voice for understanding, you seeking after it like silver or searching for it like treasures. God can and will speak to us, but a big part of us hearing starts with us listening. Are you with me on this? We have to listen. We have to lean in. We have to be intentional to say, God, will you speak to me? And that brings us to our text for today. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, this is a really interesting story with a really interesting central character that we're looking at today. It centers on his life and some things that he is walking through. And it's a unique and challenging story, I think, for those of us that want to hear God. So I'm just going to begin by reading in verse 1 of 2 Kings 5, and we're going to unpack it and walk through this together. This is what it says. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So Naaman is this commander. He's the commander of an army. Uh, he's been successful. He's held in high regard. He's known to be courageous. In, in every important category of what it meant to be a man during this day, like in the ancient Near East, all the things that made you a success, all the things that made you somebody people respected, all of those boxes Naaman checked. Successful, courageous, victorious, like all these different things. You would go down and say, this guy has everything. But there's a problem. In spite of all of his successes, he has this skin disorder. He's a leper, which creates a bit of a conundrum in his life. He's had all of this success. Everything has gone his way. But there's this one unresolved part of his life. And I think this is really good for us to look at and understand because I think it speaks to something that we often face. Are there not times in your life when it's like all the categories, you might look at all these different categories and say, man, so many things are going my way. Like there's a lot of really good stuff happening, but there's that one thing that is just off. 
Maybe it's a relational thing, or maybe it's a financial thing, or maybe it's a location thing, whatever it is. Maybe it's an emotional thing, something that you're feeling. And it's like, you, you have all of these other things that are going really, really well, but when your mind settles and the dust settles on your day, and when you're done with the to-do list, you go back to that one thing that's unresolved. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, you sit down with somebody, maybe you, you start to talk to somebody, and, and you start to tell them what you're struggling with or what this thing is. I mean, this happens to also to us all the time. You're complaining to somebody about it, and they go, but look at all the good stuff in your life. By the way, that drives me crazy, because sometimes I just want to complain to people. Are you with me on this? Sometimes I want to complain without someone saying, but look at the bright side. I just want you to hear me for a moment, right? That happens. There are times when all the categories are good, but there's that one nagging thing that just doesn't seem to get resolved, and we can't get over it, and it affects our attitudes. It affects our moods. That's Naaman in this situation. He has this thing. Life is good, except there's this one thing. So let's read verse 2. It says, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, this is really fascinating. It sort of foreshadows what's about to take place. But, but I hope you also capture the irony of what's taking place. Um, first, the suggestion for his healing comes from a girl who was captured in a raid, and somehow she has compassion for the man who's responsible for the raid that separated her from his family. That's a really ironic moment, and I won't get into the details of that, but I just, you have to capture that for a second. The second irony is this. Here we have this big, respected, powerful, courageous man and he's taking advice from this little girl from a foreign land. I think that, A, I think that speaks to his desperation. I think that gives us a sense of how desperate he is to have this resolve, that he's actually saying, there's this little girl from a foreign land, and I'm just going to take her advice. Like, you realize what that takes for him. He's desperate. But then secondly, and I think this is even more beautiful, it also speaks to the unique way that God works. Could God use a powerless girl to bring healing to a great man. Does God work that way? So he goes to the king of Syria, tells him what she said, and he, the king says, let me write a letter. You take it to the king of Israel, and let's, let's lean into what she's told us. Verse 5. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. I love that part. Brought his wardrobe with him, right? And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. So here we get a snapshot into just how paranoid and self-centered and narcissistic some leaders can be, right? The king of Israel literally thinks, this is a trap. The king of Syria is trapping me. He's, he's done this to, to start an argument with me. Poor Naaman just wants to be healed, and the king loses his mind on this. Like, who, who does he think I am? You think I'm God, that I can raise men from the dead? You think that I can heal this man of his leprosy? Like, are you starting a fight with me? That's what he thinks. But then we keep reading in verse 8. It says, When Elisha, the prophet, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So he confronts the king. 
Why are you doing this? Why are you responding this way? Let's let God move. Let's let God do what only God can do and and let this man see God for who he is. So send him my way. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So imagine this. You're Elisha, you're in your home, and the commander of one of the most powerful armies in the world shows up with his horses, plural, his chariots, plural, and his wardrobe, obviously probably brought that with him too. He stands at your door with all this display of power and force because you said to the king, send him to me. I'll take care of this. We'll show him who God is. Verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So I want you to catch this. Elisha doesn't make an appearance, right? One of the most powerful men in the land is at your door knocking and you send a messenger like, are you baking in the kitchen? You're like, oh, you know what? I know it's the commander of the Syrian army, but would you just... Could you just like go tell him to go wash in the Jordan River seven times and everything will be fine? It's just not a big deal. Like, what is he doing in this moment? Like, how, how, what is Elisha up to that's so busy he can't go meet the guy at the door, right? So he tells him, go wash in the Jordan River. And Naaman reacts to this exactly as you would expect him to react. It says in verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper, right? He's like, does he not have a magic wand or some pixie dust that he's going to throw on me? Like, is this it? Like, you just sent a guy to the door and told me to go take a bath in the river? And then verse 12, he continues, he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He's offended, right? He doesn't like the delivery method, and he doesn't care for the instructions that he's been given. He, he can't believe that Elisha didn't come to the, to the door and greet him, and he's incredulous about what he's being asked to do. Go bathe in the Jordan River. Like, why would I do that? The rivers in our country are cleaner than the Jordan River. Why would we do this? You're not, you're not going to do anything mysterious for me. You're not going to wave a wand over me. You're not going to chant something over me. And do you realize, like how offensive this is to me. So he's insulted and he walks away in a rage because he didn't like the delivery and he didn't care for the instructions. And then this is where this gets good and interesting. This is where this gets really practical for us. I love this. Verse 13. But his servants came near him and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? This, this is so good. Name a servant say, wait, wait a second. We get that you're offended. And we understand the instructions don't make sense to you. But we have come all of this way to hear from this man. Why would you walk away now? In fact, some translations, not the one that I just read, but many English translations actually it translate this a little bit better from the Hebrew language. They actually say to him, if he would have asked you to do a great thing, wouldn't you have done it? But he's asked you to do a simple thing. Like if he told you to climb a mountain and jump through hoops, you would have done it. But he's asked you to do something simple. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do this? Just go dip in the water. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He did what the man of God told him to do, and he 
was clean. And in this moment, I believe that Naaman learned a lesson that I think every one of us could benefit from. Naaman had to make a decision, and here it is, and I want you to catch this. He had to decide, do I trust the instructions or do I trust the one giving them? Do I trust the instructions or do I trust the one giving them? That question is a game changer, right? Do you trust the instructions or do you trust the one who has given these instructions to you? We see some things in this story that we see repeated throughout the Bible. We see this over and over again, not just here, but in other places, that, that you, oftentimes we are going to hear God through unexpected sources, in some unexpected places. Like God is going to say some things sometimes that we don't expect him to say, and sometimes the directions that he gives us are unexpected directions. Are you with me in this? Like sometimes he does this. God is going to speak in your life in ways and places that you don't expect. He's going to use surprising people. He's going to use surprising circumstances. Sometimes he's going to tell you things that you might want to dismiss. That's why we use the word unexpected. Because if you expected it, it wouldn't be a surprise, right? It means you didn't see it coming. And sometimes God is going to ask us to do things that we don't understand. We will wonder out loud like Naaman did. Why? Why would I do this? Like, why, why are you leading me in this way? Or, or we'll balk at the simplicity, like seriously, like God, all the instructions you could give me and you're just telling me to do this simple thing. Like, why? Why would I do this? Like, go wash in the Jordan River. It doesn't make sense. And when that happens to you, you're going to have to make a decision. Will you trust the instructions or will you trust the one giving them? Because those are two totally different things. In fact, let me explain this. If you choose to trust the instructions, if you say the instructions have to make sense to me, if, if, if it has to be something that agrees with you, then you're actually not trusting God. You're just trusting yourself, right? If the instructions have to resonate with you, if, if, if you have to wrap your brain around them, if they have to be congruent with your life goals or your objectives, if, if they have to make sense to you, then you're not trusting God, you're trusting yourself. But if you trust the one behind the instructions, then it doesn't matter how complex they are. It doesn't matter how simple they are. It doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. What matters is the source. Is this God or is this not God? When there's that nudge, when there's that voice, when there's that encouragement, is this God or is it not? Do you trust the one who gave them to you. But I find it mildly amusing that oftentimes, you know, we go to God when we're at dead ends. Like we run into something relationally or financially or just in our life. We come to this place where we can't get our way out of it and we go to God and we ask God to intervene or to resolve something and we pray and we seek his direction. But then if it doesn't make sense to us, we're like, well, there's gotta be something else, right? Like we ask God to give us what we need in terms that we understand in ways that we that makes sense to us. And yet if it was something that we understood or something that made sense to us, wouldn't we have been able to come up with a solution in the first place? I mean, don't we go to God when we have no other, like we go to God and say, I don't know how to solve this. And so if God says something that doesn't make sense, well, that makes sense because if it made sense, you wouldn't have gone to God, right? <laughs> That's kind of the way we have to think about this. So, so, here, so here's what I'm discovering. And, and when I say this, I mean this, that as I was writing this this past week, I was thinking about, just how I'm learning this in my own life. And I'm experiencing this in my own life. I'm learning that oftentimes the only way to fully understand what God is up to is to simply obey him. 
Let me say that again. The only way to fully understand is to obey. Uh, It reminds me, there was this song I remember singing in church growing up from the late 1800s that had this refrain in it that said, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. God's instructions will make way more sense when we stop analyzing them and we start doing them. We start leaning in. And I think that's what Naaman learned. Are you with me on this? It's leaning in. I want to finish with Naaman's story because it's a beautiful story. Um, What happens next? Verse 15. It says, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Notice he switched. Now he is Elisha's servant, and he wants to offer this. And he's saying two things. He's saying, listen, I see, right? I obeyed. I did this simple thing, and I know, I mean, I I questioned it at first, but then I leaned in, and I did myself seven times, and I can see that there is a God in Israel. I see that. I believe. I understand all of these things. But then he says, but can I pay for what happened here? And that is completely consistent with the psychology of somebody living in the ancient Near East during this time. If God has blessed you, well, then you better offer appeasement so that God's not angry with you for not appreciating him, so that God's not angry with you the next time you need something. And so he goes back and he says, I need to pay for this. I need to do something to appease your God because that's the way this whole transaction works. But let me ask you this. Does God desire appeasement or does he desire gratitude? Does God want to get paid Or does God want something to well up inside of us where we just appreciate him for who he is? So the next verse, verse 16, it says that Elisha responded and said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So God refuses appeasement, and in doing so, he stimulates gratitude. I don't need to be appeased. I just want you to appreciate me for who I am. And he does this through grace, right? If you pay for it, It's not grace. If you earn it, it's not gratitude, right? It's just that old religious cycle of appeasing the gods for their favor. Elisha, in refusing, says, this God is not like any God you've ever known. Yes, you've seen him. Yes, you have better vision of who he is. But this God does not need to be paid off. There's no bad karma with this God, So Naaman responds, and he gets it, and I love this. This is a really interesting thing that happens. Verse 17, it says, Naaman said, Well, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he asked for dirt. Like most people get like a a bumper sticker for some sort of souvenir, right? Naaman goes, I want two mule loads of dirt. Why? He's going to build an altar. He, he recognizes that this ground that he's standing on, there's something unique that God has met him in this place. And so he wants to take the dirt and go home and build an altar f- where he will worship this God that he has now been introduced to. But then he goes on and he asks Elisha for a favor. I want you to listen to this. He says this, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon, Ramon is the, the Syrian god that is equivalent of Baal, which is a god you hear about in a lot of the Old Testament. It's a pagan god. When he goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said, go in peace. And what he's saying is this, 
I have to go home and I have a job that will require me to go do some things that don't agree with what I've experienced here. By the way, anybody else ever feel that way? Like sometimes you go to a job and it feels like you're worshiping some other God. He says, I have to go back into this place, but I know who the true God is. Like, I've seen God for who he is, and I have to go in here. Will you pardon me when I go back and I have to do these things because of my job? And Elisha says, we're good. We're good. You get it. You've experienced this God. I share this story with you today because it, I just think it reveals my heart for you as, as people, um, and I oftentimes, if I think, you know, if I'm going to do anything on a weekend, I want to I share my heart with you. And my heart for you is that you would experience God's grace. There's nothing I want more for you than to know the gratitude that can well up in your soul when you see God's grace, when you experience his unconditional love, when you encounter God for who he is. That's what I desire for you. And and even more so what I desire is that you would have the courage, that you would be a man or a woman of valor who would have the courage to trust and obey whatever it is God's telling you to do. From the most complex thing, the most outlandish thing, to the most simple thing, my desire is that when God speaks to you, when God encourages you, when God, when God gives you a, something to carry out, that you would have the courage to lean in and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to offer the benediction this morning. If you are willing and want to open your hands to receive it, I offer this to you. May you be men and women who hear because you've chosen to listen. And when you hear, may you trust the giver of instructions more than the instructions themselves. May you have the courage to walk in obedience to everything that God encourages you to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. We love you guys so much. The air conditioning's on, so feel free to hang out in here as long as you want. Talk to some friends and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.